Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. It's so great to be with you on this Thursday. As always, we have a jam-packed and fantastic show ahead of us. So as they say, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I don't think I've ever used that one before, uh, but here we go. Republican Representative Anna Paulina Luna said something during a recent uh, appearance on the War Room podcast, Steve Bannon's show um, on Real America's Voice that was rather inaccurate and um, you could call it dishonest, but we'll attribute it to ignorance to give her the benefit of the doubt here. And it's on the subject of Ukraine, their potential membership into NATO, a lot of things relevant in the news right now in regard to that. So we'll use this short clip as a jumping off point to get into some stuff on Ukraine, NATO updates on that. But also, it is hard enough to get our political leaders to uh, derive from facts they understand well the correct conclusion. So even when you have really knowledgeable political leaders, it's still hard to get them to um, take from that the correct conclusion and then act accordingly and implement the correct policies and all that. With really knowledgeable leaders, it's still hard to mobilize um, political movements to make them do the correct things, absolutely. When we have, as we have so many right now, leaders who are not knowledgeable at all about what they're talking about. And especially with this MAGA part of the Republican Party, it seems it's not even an admired characteristic for their followers to put into power leaders and to have their leaders be knowledgeable about what they're talking about. The only priority and characteristic looked for is tell me what I want to hear. It doesn't matter if you actually know what you're talking about. That seems to be the situation right now, unfortunately. And Anna Paulina Luna definitely falls into that as this clip will portray again on the issue of Ukraine that we'll discuss further. Take a look. I want to remind everyone that remember, Ukraine had an option to join NATO and they didn't. So they want to get housing insurance essentially after their house flooded. And that's not our problem. We don't represent Ukraine. We represent the United States. I want to remind. Okay. So we'll start off with her primary claim there that I guess she believes NATO has offered membership to Ukraine and they turned it down. That's not accurate. The opposite is accurate. The earliest um, example I could find was from 2002, Ukraine expressed publicly interest all the way back then in being a NATO country, trying to become part of NATO. And ever since then, there's been different levels of prioritization of that on the part of Ukrainian governments and uh, different kind of magnitude of public pushing and all of that. But it's been consistent that Ukraine will express interest, NATO and NATO member countries often will say, yeah, at some point, but not yet. And they have not allowed Ukraine to start that process. And if you understand the process, it's extensive. We would know if Ukraine had been given the opportunity to join and turned it down because of how many steps are included, starting with uh, many of these countries um, who are interested, we'll get into what's called the membership action uh, plan sort of program there and that for years can go on they can be in this membership action plan before actually um formally applying and being accepted and ukraine hasn't been allowed to do any of that and so while we have heard a lot of promises from nato eventually 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 the actual process hasn't been started so she's wrong on that front and then even if what she said was correct to compare it to the housing insurance thing that she did is so vile because what'd she say there oh you didn't get insurance for your house so it flooded the analogy being 
Well, I guess you're just going to have to deal with the fact that Russia is invading your country, trying to take over your territory and slaughtering your people, your human beings. And that's how flippant she is about that subject. Um, and then obviously any of the people saying, before we get to what's going on recently, um, that there's no reason the United States, even if it's just acting purely self-interest, um, in its self-interest should support Ukraine here also is not accurate we have a very significant material interest in russia not being allowed to destabilize the globe that hurts us as they're currently doing and as they could do further in other situations if they're allowed to do what they're doing currently and so it is very much in the united states's interest to um both protect or assist in ukraine's defense of themselves and their protection of themselves that will one set a precedent to stop russia from doing this in the future to protect them in the moment, which is the most important thing. Um, and also, hopefully, weaken Russia in a significant enough extent where they don't um, have the ability to try anything like this and they don't have the ability to leverage their power in harmful ways as they've been doing previously. So lots of reasons, even if you're just thinking from the United States' perspective as to why this is good, what we're doing, not to mention the humanity of Ukrainians. Um, as well, which I think is very important, but I'm trying to speak to Anna Paulina Luna there who apparently doesn't care. Okay, so now quickly while we're on the subject of NATO to quickly run you through um, recent big news items on that. Here was Zelensky during the recent summit um, in Lithuania, I think it was, talking about how he is confident Ukraine will be led into NATO soon. Probably it's going to have to be after um, the war ends, so how soon that will be, we don't really know. Just as we need NATO, and I believe that this is absolutely fair, I am confident that after the war, Ukraine will be in NATO, we'll be doing everything possible to make it happen. And then we will jump from Zelensky to Biden, who is expressing a similar sentiment. We just concluded uh, the first meeting of NATO-Ukraine Council. And uh, we're, uh, all our allies agreed Ukraine's future lies in NATO. That's not a surprise to any of us, I don't think. Uh Ukraine's future lies in NATO. The thing, if you're thinking from Ukraine's perspective on that, even though you do want your future to lie in NATO, uh, that's been said a lot of times. I think it's more serious right now because of how the uh, globe, how a lot of countries in the world have united around Ukraine. And so if this war does come to an end, it probably will be a priority to bring Ukraine into NATO. Um, but historically, as I mentioned, since 2002, there's been a whole lot of um, expressions of interest on the part of Ukraine and time and time again, promises from NATO or um, kind of vague gestures towards eventually that haven't actually been followed through on. And I will quickly address on NATO membership before getting to a couple final things on this. Uh, it's it's totally reasonable that Biden is avoiding. Um, and actually, for the purpose of this point, let me read this from the New York Times real quick. President Biden said in an interview that aired on Sunday that Ukraine was not ready for membership in NATO and that it was premature to begin the process to allow Ukraine to join uh, the alliance in the middle of a war. And that's the key part, middle of a war. It makes sense that NATO and Biden, and Biden has a lot of sway here, um, want to wait until Russia is not actively invading Ukraine. Because if 
Ukraine was allowed to be in NATO, became officially a member country of NATO, then instantly, if Russia didn't in that exact moment withdraw, then NATO would officially be at war because of Article 5 with Russia. And so that would be a massive, um, possibly earth-destroying type action. So you understand why there's hesitance right now. Um, but if Ukraine had been in NATO before Russia's invasion, the invasion probably wouldn't have happened. The argument that will be made from kind of Putin sympathizers that we have to deal with far too often right now in politics is, well, the only reason Putin invaded was because of NATO expansion. So you're just asking for more invasions. Number one, Putin is yet to dare to invade in a NATO country that's on his border, even though he's unhappy about them being a part of NATO. So clearly it's good protection and could stabilize um, the situation right now. And not right now in Ukraine, but I'm saying could stabilize the situation if it had happened before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And then second, Ukraine was saying, okay, we really want to be a part of NATO. And there was interest. And then Putin got really angry and was being really upset about it. And NATO very publicly backed off from Ukraine joining NATO before the invasion, before the invasion, after making clear that it wasn't going to happen soon when it came to Ukraine, that's when Russia invaded. Clearly it's disingenuous. Clearly Putin is trying to acquire that territory, whether or not Ukraine had interest in NATO or was going to be allowed anytime soon. So it's a dishonest talking point. I'll end on this from the New York Times. NATO declared on Tuesday that Ukraine would be invited to join the alliance, but did not say how or when disappointing its president, but reflecting the resolve by President Biden and other leaders not to be drawn directly into Ukraine's war with Russia. You understand both sides um, there. President Zelensky, of course, wanting the protection of NATO, um, now, as soon as possible, people are dying in his country and leaders in other countries, such as Biden and other European countries, for their citizens, don't want to instantly, by bringing Ukraine into NATO and causing NATO to be at war with Russia, um, cause the threats that would come along with that, the possible disastrous ramifications that would instantly come along with that to be present. And so everyone's kind of acting when it comes to this back and forth, logically, uh, NATO and Ukraine, and then, of course, Russia very uh, illogically. So there's a situation, Anna Paulina Luna, very wrong. And uh, there's your updates on NATO and Ukraine. Well, we keep getting good economic news and I want to update you on more of it. I talked about somewhat recently the good jobs numbers. Now I have stuff on wages and inflation. This is from NBC News. For much of the post-pandemic period, U.S. consumers have experienced rapid price increases that touch nearly every aspect of the economy, from food and gas to hotels, airfares, and cars. But finally, the price growth fever appears to be breaking, and with it, Americans are getting an indirect raise for the first time since March 2021. Wage growth rapidly outpaced price growth. As a result, in June, real average hourly earnings increased 1.2% on a year-over-year -year basis. And you can compare this to June 2022, where we saw hourly earnings, um, average hourly earnings had declined by 3.2%. And so now because inflation is slowing, but wages are still going up, we're seeing real wage growth, meaning adjusted for inflation, um, is present in a pretty impactful way. And that's really good news. And because this is very... Uh, dependent on the inflation figures, here's your update on uh, that. Annual inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, slowed to 3% last month, meaning the year that ended in last month saw 3% inflation. The slowest rate in more than two years and the 12th consecutive uh, month of declines. 
for context, a year ago, the CPI peaked at 9.1%, the worst inflation in more than 40 years. And as we've talked about a lot of what was necessary, but what was done during the pandemic to try to get us out of that economic disaster, the economic downturn that the pandemic caused, um, we were left with an aftermath of the economy did jump back into gear pretty quickly, and that was good. But the inflation that, that caused was pretty significant, harmful and painful for um, Americans. And so as kind of we've continued to recover. The Fed has acted accordingly to inflation. We're seeing that come down at a pretty rapid pace. And for perspective, 2% is the target number for the Fed of inflation. A little bit inflation is good economically, but 3% slightly more than we want. But we're getting, uh, getting, <laughs> we're getting really close to that target figure, which is really hopeful because if we can keep inflation down like that and wage growth going, that's exactly where we want to be headed. The jobs numbers are great. The unemployment is great as of now. And um, so across the board, some really good things, not perfect, but looking a lot better than just a year or two ago. And I always want to say, even though honest individuals who understand, as hopefully everyone in my audience and myself do, um, how the economy works and how the president doesn't control the economy or the economic reality that can affect it here and there, but it's not solely their responsibility, not solely um, them who is to blame or is who to get cre uh, give credit to. But it seemed a lot of people across the board were blaming Biden constantly whenever inflation that I walked through way more specifically so many times in the past, why it was not something to do with the president at that time. It had to do with things that were taking place in the aftermath of the pandemic that were happening globally. Um, and we would have dealt with no matter who the president was, but people would blame Biden for inflation. Now, if you're consistent, even though it's not all because of Biden that inflation is coming down, of course not. Um, but if you're consistent and you were blaming him constantly, then now you would say, oh, wow, look, look at all these good economic metrics. I'm going to give Biden credit, but we won't hear that. I know from the right wing anytime soon. And uh, I'm just really glad for the sake of people that these are the metrics. That is really good. And then as a political commentator and someone who analyzes politics and really doesn't want Trump to become president again, I'm glad that these metrics are finally kind of being registered both Publicly, people are starting to change their public perception and um, actually in the reality for consumers so that as we enter into the 2024 presidential election, hopefully that helps the Democratic side to make the case that, listen, we came in economic disaster. Now we've recovered in some major ways. Uh, we're, we're hitting historic economic metrics when it comes to unemployment. We talked about previously how under the Biden administration, black unemployment was um, back to a record low and uh, all these different things. And Biden has a pretty successful legislative record. So obviously he's the much better candidate than Trump. We've talked about how abortion rights and Republicans' stance on abortion rights is a losing issue for Republicans and how uh, when this has been on the ballot and as this reflects in polling, there is a lot of support right now within the country, record support for abortion rights. That doesn't mean, though, that uh, red states and majority Republican legislatures aren't still moving forward, even though it doesn't seem to be politically advantageous in many cases with these extreme abortion laws that is still happening in a very significant way in this post Dobbs um, moment that we're in and I want to update you on the most recent example of that this comes out of Iowa 
um, and they have now enacted a six-week abortion ban in the state. Then we'll look at how this kind of, uh, where this puts the picture across the country as far as abortion rights to go state by state. So here's this being reported on from a local station in Iowa. 13 this morning. It took until almost midnight last night, but the state legislature's special session did end with lawmakers passing a new version of the fetal heartbeat bill. And it's one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country. Our own Max Cotton joins us now to tell us how everything went down in the House and Senate last night. Good morning, Max. Hey, good morning, Justin and Kaylin. And as you can kind of see behind me, there's a live look at the State House. You know, it's quiet now, but it wasn't last night. And, you know, this was the expected outcome when Governor Reynolds called lawmakers back here to Des Moines. But now a bill mirroring that 2018 fetal heartbeat law heads to her desk. She called the special session after the state Supreme Court refused to let the old law go into effect. The new bill would ban abortions when fetal cardiac activity is detected, and that's usually around six weeks. There are exceptions, though, for rape, incest, and to save the life of the mother. Democrats unanimously oppose the bill. They say it takes away the rights from women across the state, while its supporters argue it's not about taking away rights, but extending them. It is pretty wild to think about six weeks knowing you're pregnant then making a decision then um figuring out logistics all in six weeks nearly impossible for a lot of people and that's what's now in place in the state of iowa and as i'm now throwing up on screen in many states across the country um you can see darker purple filling in the outline of a state is a more or the most restrictive ban, a full ban, and then as it gets lighter, it gets less restrictive. And now in so many states across the country, in so many of these red states, there are extreme abortion laws in place. Um, and we can't, in this moment, change that. We can't prevent that from happening. But what we can do is look forward and think about how to unravel some of this. And it's interesting as we stand here today, we can kind of retrospectively understand how, and it was definitely noticeable in the moment too, the anti-choice movement was mobilized and was active on this issue. And whether it be prioritizing the um, Supreme Court and all of what leads up to who ends up being put there and um, state by state realities and uh, legislators and their stances on the subject there was a very mobilized movement behind the issue of um, what is referred to as the pro-life stance and we need to make sure now that we're seeing the disaster as many people could have very accurately predicted but that a lot of people are witnessing and being more energized by that we are currently experiencing in this post dobbs decision um, reality, we need to make sure that we get even more mobilized than they have been and uh, prioritize these elections and start to unravel some of this and eventually get federally laws put into place to protect abortion rights. But in the meantime, state by state, wherever you're at, if this is an issue you care about, um, getting involved, getting active, because that's one of the defining characteristics in my mind of the anti-choice movement is they have been loud, proud, and aggressive with their um, political actions and getting some of these laws implemented. So much so that we're seeing right now a situation where Republicans aren't being helped politically by this issue, but still charging forward in red states with these laws um, because of the hardliner stance they've defined themselves um, 
for having. And so it's now our time to, even though I wish this wasn't the case, the only thing we can do, and I try to give you more than just a depressing message, um, is to look forward and figure out how to get the proper people into power as is so um, often brought up on the show because so many things come back to it and prioritize electoral politics and um, change, make change on this issue. Last thing we'll talk about on this subject, a Des Moines resident came forward during one of these hearings as this was being debated uh, in the Iowa legislature and pointed out one of the remarks that I'll show you from her, um, uh, from what she had to say here, was calling out hypocrisy on the part of the Republican Party where they talk about caring about life and all of that. But as is so often pointed out, it seems the second that um, birth happens, everything after that is not cared so much about. Stunningly, take a look at this. For Kim Reynolds, Bob Vanderplatz, who I don't even know who that is. He threatened judges in a newspaper, and now all of a sudden, you guys are gonna go and sign this at his celebration of some church celebration, I hear? Where was he when Kim Reynolds was saying she wasn't gonna feed kids anymore? These same kids that you've made harder to get eligible for SNAP when Infamil is $30 or more a can? Really? Really? Where, where were they then? Where are all these church people when she's denying people health care? Where are they then? I'm just saying if this is about the church and if this is about God, you are the same people that will slap them loaves of breads out of Jesus' hand, slap out the fish out of Jesus' hand, and tell them to get in line and figure out if they're worthy or eligible. Are they eligible for this food, Jesus? Are they eligible for healing, Jesus? Are these people good enough? Is so what she's referring to is, um, or one of the things she's referring to is recently in the state of Iowa, Governor Kim Reynolds, along with Republicans in the state, uh, enacted stricter restrictions on SNAP benefits, uh, food stamps, and made it harder for people to become eligible for that program. And that's often what we see. People who do purport to be service-minded and follow the teachings of Jesus and all of that, then turn around and support politicians who actively often appear to be taking food out of the hands of low-income people, as uh, Felicia Hilton pointed out there, and making these programs more restrictive and making it harder for communities to be uplifted in necessary ways and effective ways. And that is unfortunate and it is hypocritical, even though as I say often, it doesn't seem in politics, at least with certain figures, calling out hypocrisy does much of anything. Well, yet another Republican hearing has gone terribly wrong for the organizers of these hearings, which is, of course, Republicans. This was from the House Judiciary Committee, and they held a hearing to grill FBI Director Christopher Wray, who right now is the center of a lot of hate when it comes to the GOP because he dares to lead an organization that he was appointed into that position by Trump and is a lifelong Republican, but apparently now he's a deep state liberal who's going after Trump because of the FBI's involvement and the investigation into Donald Trump's mishandling classified documents and his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. And the fact that uh, Christopher Ray dares to do anything other than prevent Trump from being held accountable is offensive to many within the right wing. And so they want to grill him on that and Hunter Biden's laptop and all those different things we hear so much about. Well, interestingly, a Republican kind of went off the GOP script during the hearing and then in an interview afterwards and called out the very danger of what the GOP is currently doing and called out his own party 
in a really effective way. This was Ken Buck. We'll look at that um, here first from the hearing, then this interview afterwards, where he more specifically outlines his feelings on what the Republican Party is doing with the FBI and Christopher Ray right now. Um, but here's him making the point that Christopher Ray is a hard person to make the case for effectively of him being this liberal who hates conservatives and weaponizing the FBI against conservatives. In reality, we know what's going on. Yes, Christopher Ray, I can tell you in his private life, is probably conservative based on his record, as we'll be walked through here, and still cares about the rule of law and doesn't think that he should prevent someone from being held accountable for very clear uh, alleged violations of the law just because of his name, which is Donald Trump. So take a look at this. You started out as a, an AUSA, and I'm getting this information from Wikipedia, the great font of knowledge in the digital age, and so I'm assuming that it's true, but you started out as an AUSA. You uh, were nominated by Republican President Bush for the position of Assistant Attorney General in the Criminal Division at the Department of Justice, and you were confirmed by a Republican Senate, if I uh, am, am correct in that. Uh, yes, by uh, unanimous voice vote. And, and you were then nominated by Republican President Donald Trump uh, to be the FBI director, and again, confirmed by the Republican Senate uh, uh, for that position. Uh, yes, I think there were only five votes against me, and they were all uh, from Democrats. Um, according to Wikipedia, uh, you're still a registered Republican, and I hope you don't change your party affiliation after this hearing is over. Um, but I want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you. You started out as a... So that is a Republican making the point that uh, this is a lifelong Republican who at every turn was put into his most prominent positions by other Republicans and two Republican presidents, one being Donald Trump, who now he's supposed to be weaponizing the agency he leads to go after. Yeah, sure. And then here's the second moment uh, from a CNN interview afterwards where Republican Representative Ken Buck expands on his position about the current Republican Party's attempt to demonize the FBI and Christopher Wray. But to target the FBI as punishment is absurd. They are in charge of and leading the effort on uh, counterterrorism efforts, counterintelligence, Chinese and Russian spies. They're leading the effort on white collar crime, on human trafficking. Uh, to, to say that we're going to cut an agency that, that performs such a vital function in the United States government is, is really irresponsible. But to target the FBI... And I'm sure Ken Buck perpetuates the same talking points about double standards with the justice system and um, plenty of things that we would argue against, but he's willing, at least here, to recognize how absurd his own actions, or his own party's actions, I should say, um, have been and are, and this whole public stunt to try to make out the FBI to be biased against conservatives, it's all just that. It's a political stunt. It's to get brownie points with the base and to defend Trump. And whether it be on the Twitter files related things that were brought up a lot during this hearing and many in the past that we walked through very specifically, um, the dishonesty around a lot of the talking points in regard to that, or the Trump FBI related stuff. Um, there isn't much substance to this narrative, but apparently they perceive it to be effective. And so now they're having to follow through with all their promises and all their um, statements about the FBI. And it's gone so far as to uh, lead some of these Republicans to call for after years of speaking out against this slogan, 
they're now calling for the defunding of the police, defunding of federal law enforcement in the form of the FBI. Um, and some even calling for the abolition of the FBI based on their own dishonest narratives about what's going on with the FBI. Um, and it's pretty <laughs> hypocritical and wild and a violation of their own principles. Obviously, for a while, um, they were very opposed to and obsessed a lot over a small portion of the left that I wasn't a part of, but it was a part of the left that called for um, prominently after or during the summer of 2020, after the murder of George Floyd, the defunding of police and um, the right wing, even though this wasn't something barely any Democratic politicians within, um, especially the federal government, were calling for or anything like that. It became a rallying cry for them. And they said it would never be something that they would support. And now they support it, just not with local police in the form of federal law enforcement. And it's, um, yet another example of principles only being something that they will communicate, but not actually something they hold. Because if they held the principles, then they would be consistent. And so many people aren't within politics, especially, uh, especially in the current MAGA Republican Party. So uh, we'll see how this all progresses. But it's a really dangerous precedent to set of if we don't like the way that law and order is affecting people within our political party, then we're going to defund organizations and we're going to um, go after those organizations and try to metaphorically or uh, politically beat them into submission. That's not a good precedent at all. Well, Donald Trump is now consistently accusing, I guess you can say, or alleging that Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, is a coke user, a cocaine user, <laughs> without evidence, obviously. And also, what's interesting about this, separate from it just being another example of Trump being Trump, um, detached from reality and all of that, it's also just directly uh, contradictory with the very narrative Trump himself has been pushing for a very long time about Joe Biden. And let's be honest, anyone observing Joe Biden isn't necessarily going to get... Uh, <laughs> Coked up vibes, we'll say. He comes off a little bit more chill than Coke would lead one to expect. So here's this during uh, a recent interview with Wayne Allen Root on Real America's Voice. And uh, it's the most recent example. Then I'll give you another in a moment. And we can't have a president that's on cocaine when you're dealing with nuclear weapons and everything else. You know, right. we deal, and you've heard me say this, presidency, all these guys... These are at the top of their game. These are smart, whether you like them or their country or their their policies, you know, which are pretty tough policies. But these people are at the top of their game mentally. And we have a guy who in his best years wasn't at the top of the game. So Wayne Allen Root there goes, right, right, whenever... <laughs> Trump says that, quote, we can't have a president that's on cocaine when you are dealing with nuclear weapons. Um, and Wayne Allen Root acts like that's just a normal statement for Trump to make about the current president of the United States, even though there's zero evidence that Biden is on cocaine. And also, uh, again, I say, if you were to think about, okay, how you'd expect someone to act if they were using cocaine as president. 
I don't think Biden, of all the presidents, I don't think Biden would pop into your head initially, especially because Trump has been calling Biden Sleepy Joe. Do you remember that, <laughs> Trump? How can you be Sleepy Joe and also coked up Joe? I don't know. Um, and then this was a recent post on True Social. I have an idea. Get deranged Jack Smith, Trump says, to take just a tiny portion of the millions of dollars he is spending illegally targeting me um, and let him go to the White House with his army of thugs to solve the cocaine dilemma. I'd bet they already know the answer, but just in case, it could be done in five minutes. Is it Crooked Joe and his wonderful son Hunter? Release the findings, release the tapes. We can't have a crackhead in charge of our nuclear arsenal. Um, now, of course, this is in reference to, and this started whenever uh, the cocaine was found at the White House. But again, why you would initially think it's it's Joe, Sleepy Joe, I really don't know. We'll end on a rhyme, I guess, for that segment. It seems like often the people most loudly pushing uh, dishonest narratives and theories know the least about the underlying facts of the situation they're supposed to be building their narrative off of. They're the one obsessing about this story or whatever, but don't seem to know the basic facts of that very story. And that's definitely the case with Maria Bartiromo, the Fox Business host, as I'm about to give you an example of. She did an interview with Republican Representative Greg Murphy, and uh, they were responding to the news about Gal Luft, the star whistleblower for Republicans that was supposed to reveal Joe Biden as this corrupt guy and he's a credible whistleblower that's what we kept hearing and then we learn that he's a fugitive when we get access to his unsealed indictment and learn that he's being accused of being an unregistered foreign agent on behalf of the chinese arms trafficking violating u.s sanctions against iran and making false statements to federal agents not exactly the credible whistleblower we were promised <laughs> um and as they were talking about this maria bartiromo um reveals just how either little she understands or more accurately how willing to be dishonest she is in the way that she communicates the timeline of Gal Luft's indictment. And so I'll give you the information more on this afterwards if you're a little blurry on the details. Um, but here's Maria Bartiromo talking about this fugitive whistleblower of Republicans trying to push the narrative that the reason he's a fugitive is because the Biden administration is going after him because he does have the evidence. I'll talk about why that's so bonkers after this. See you this morning. Thanks very much for being morning, here. Maria. Is this realistic to move FBI headquarters to Alabama? Sure. Um, administrations move different parts of agencies all the time. We did it back in North Carolina. So it's a good idea. I think uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating one because it gets you out of the, uh, the swamp as it is in, in uh, D.C. to get away from all the influence and actually so you can do your job and not be so influenced by politics. They well, shouldn't be being influenced by the politics of D.C. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what other levers you all have to pull. You're getting stonewalled yeah. left and right. Somebody's lying in terms of the Hunter Biden investigation. And you're not getting the witnesses that you need because uh, yep. many of them are getting intimidated. Gal Luft was just indicted. Right. You know, and, and it, it just goes to, to show you, uh, Maria, that it's one, one problem and we see all of a sudden there's a huge problem. But then the DOJ, FBI now create another storm to hide that. It's very reminiscent of what happened in the early stages of Watergate, where there was one cover up over another cover up over another cover up. It's going to blow. Is he describing Trump's classified documents case? Well, it's going to blow up at some point sooner than later. They can only cover up so much until somebody absolutely cracks. So what you're hearing there and the notable part of that was this little paragraph 
she says, yeah, I mean, I don't know what other levers you have to pull. You're getting stonewalled left and right. Someone's or somebody's lying in terms of the Hunter Biden investigation. And you're not getting the witnesses you need because many of them are getting intimidated. Gal Luft was just indicted, was just indicted. Now, that kind of is a compelling story, right? So right now, the Republican House investigation is heating up. They're going to get the stuff from Gal Luft. It's about to come out. And so then, boom, he was indicted. But actually, he was indicted in November of 2022. He was then arrested in Cyprus this February and is now a fugitive after he fled while out of prison on bail as Mediate writes. So he was arrested in November of 2022 because they knew the investigation would heat up now. That doesn't make sense. He wasn't just indicted. Um, we just found out and got the unsealed indictment right now, at least the reporting around it just exploded. But the DOJ had been investigating Galuf since I think it was 2019. So that's a really long play by the DOJ. Under the Trump administration, they started preparing to go after a guy who they knew was going to work with the House Republican majority that would later on come into power to defend Biden again under the Trump administration. That doesn't make a lot of sense. And these accusations from Galuf too have been around since before Biden got into office. The original bribery accusation came while Trump was president, while Bill Barr was attorney general. Um, Bill Barr was aware of the accusation and um, it was looked into. It was um, brought to the attention of the FBI. And we can only assume based on no investigation being opened into it, that it wasn't deemed to be legitimate enough, concerning enough to actually take seriously um, or more seriously than it was originally. And so a claim that comes from way back then is now being brought up now by this House majority. And then when we find out that the guy is a fugitive, they say, oh, that means he was just indicted right now. And that's Biden trying to go after the guy who's going to reveal everything to the House majority. It doesn't make sense, but it doesn't have to make sense. It's just about a compelling narrative. And I've talked about uh, multiple times now recently evidence uh, matters in cases like this accusations like this but it's become in especially right-wing media an acceptable substitute for evidence uh to have a compelling narrative that's it a story that makes you go oh it could be that if there was evidence for that i could logically logically figure out why that would make sense but see there's not though so just it making sense in your head of oh so this person could have done this and that could have been this. And the reason why we don't have evidence could be because it's being suppressed. And this is, but you actually have to prove things before you go on to say, as we talked about Nancy May saying recently, um, I think it was on yesterday's show, people need to know if Biden should be in prison. What? All you have are accusations. You actually have to have evidence to say something like that. Or I think that should be the standard that we hold our leaders to. But apparently a lot of people don't agree with me. Well, it seems like Donald Trump is kind of now depending on winning the election to resolve his legal troubles, which is quite the gamble to take, I have to say. And yet another reason why we have to do everything in our power within the political system to make sure Trump loses in 2024 if he's indeed the Republican nominee and goes up against President Joe Biden. And I'll show you this uh, bit of analysis from Maggie Haberman as she appeared on CNN. And apparently in Trump world, kind of uh, in his orbit, that is what they've settled on. 
because of how damning, especially with the classified documents case and future cases that may be brought against him, um, how damning the evidence is against him. And so now it's like, well, maybe if I become president again, that'll <laughs> resolve it. Take a look. Much secret about what Fonnie Willis's intentions are here, that she's going to indict or ask the grand jury to indict Donald Trump. Yeah, and signs are pointing to August for when that indictment could happen. Obviously, this is coming, Maggie, as Trump is on the campaign trail. We have the first debate in late August. And of course, today his what was referenced there was the Georgia Fannie Willis uh, Fulton County case looking into Trump's attempts to overturn the election there. Attorneys are also asking in the other investigation, the documents case, to delay it indefinitely. Is it clear to you how he's basically using a political strategy and a legal strategy all tied in one? As everything is a great flattening effect with Donald Trump, you're seeing that here too. There is no question that defending himself in these cases has become incorporated into his campaign messaging, into his fundraising messaging, and into basically everything he says publicly. What he's doing legally, in terms of the filing you just mentioned, is saying it would be unfair, basically, to have this trial uh, before an election, that it would essentially complicate, you know, it, it would be complicated by politics. Could he get a fair jury? There is no need for a rush. And that one's important because Jack Smith said when he declared, when, or when he announced his indictment and talked about it, you know, we want a speedy trial. Well, it, it's the accused who has the, opt the, the right to a speedy trial, and Trump clearly does not want that. And so I Trump's, some of Trump's advisors have been blunt in private conversations that he needs to win this election because then the case can go away. Now, that's a bit of a Hail Mary if you're betting on winning an election as a way of dealing with an indictment, but we are in an unprecedented situation. We so one of the things that was referenced there uh, was the attempt by Trump's lawyers to postpone the classified documents case trial um, to indefinitely, but I'm sure the strategy behind the scenes is to get it right next to the election or past the election so that in the first option um hypothetical they can more effectively in the court of public opinion make the case that see this is interfering with the election even though that's not an accurate narrative no matter when this trial goes on because even if you're running for elected office if it just so happens especially by your own actions trying to postpone the trial that you're being held accountable legally for your actions and that should happen no matter what but it will be something they'll be able to do in the eyes of the American people more effectively uh, make that case possibly of C is interfering uh, or in the court of uh, not in public opinion, but actually in the court of law, if he's elected president or definitely actually president um, because of the precedent that we have right now with not prosecuting sitting presidents, he might be able to avoid um, legal accountability as president much more effectively and there's a question about him pardoning himself if he could even do that with a federal case he couldn't do that with a state case so all of that would be very unprecedented and very up in the air but more likely to end in trump not being held accountable than if the trial happens very soon and that's what trump is aware of and his uh staff and those around him what they're aware of and that's why they're pushing this back and hoping that they can get it all the way past um, the the 2024 election. Another reason Trump shouldn't become president again. And imagine if you're a Republican voter or someone who's considering voting for Trump, do you really want a candidate to be trying to get your vote so that they can get into a position of power 
to get out of their own legal troubles, their own violations of the law that seem pretty clear now with the evidence that we have access to, um, and trying to avoid legal accountability by getting you to vote for them, to put them into a position of power, pretty absurd. And I really wish people wouldn't fall for that. I want to talk about some reporting uh, surrounding Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor that is concerning and another example of ethics violations. And, you know, we talked a lot recently about uh, Clarence Thomas, and that's an example of a Supreme Court justice that I often disagree with and um, am not ideologically aligned with and not a huge fan of. But Sonia Sotomayor is someone who I actually do like a lot more. And uh, that doesn't excuse, though, the ethics violations. And so here's this. I think this serves as, while not as extreme as an example, still an example of why we need Supreme Court reform and we need an ethics code to be mandated onto the Supreme Court. So here's this from the Associated Press. For colleges and libraries seeking a bold-faced name for a guest lecture, few come bigger than Sonia Sotomayor, the Supreme Court justice who rose from poverty in the Bronx to the nation's highest court. She also benefited, too, from a school's purchases of hundreds, sometimes thousands of the books she has written over the years. Sotomayor's staff has often prodded public institutions that have hosted the justice to buy her memoir or children's books, works that have earned her at least $3.7 million since she joined the court in 2009. Details of those events largely out of public view were obtained by the Associated Press through more than 100 open, uh, open records requests to public institutions. The resulting tens of thousands of pages of documents offer a rare look at Sotomayor and her fellow justices beyond their official duties. In her case, the documents reveal repeated examples of taxpayer-funded court staff performing tasks for the justices' book ventures, which workers in other branches of government are barred from doing. Um, but when it comes to promoting her literary career, Sotomayor is free to do what other government officials cannot because the Supreme Court does not have a formal code of conduct, leaving the nine justices to largely write and enforce their own uh, rules, and that's the part that needs to go. They self-govern, and... Um, it leads to them being allowed to uh, do things like that, where she's having taxpayer-funded staff prod and push on these institutions that she might be speaking at uh, to purchase large amounts of her books and make her money, right? So then it's us paying her staff to go out and work to make her money. That's, uh, no, that's completely inappropriate and not okay. And as I said, even though she's more... Uh, of a Supreme Court justice that I'm a fan of doesn't make it any more okay. And I want to clearly um, make sure I'm consistent on that and call it out when it's there. And so hopefully, <laughs> I say this very hopefully, but not that realistically in the near term, we'll see reform with the Supreme Court. It's not going to happen. Let's just be honest, especially with the current state of the GOP. But I've seen some steps with Democrats trying to make this a conversation because there does need to be a code of conduct with the Supreme Court. They shouldn't just self-govern because clearly, especially with cases like Clarence Thomas and him accepting from his billionaire conservative Nazi artifact enthusiast friend, these bougie trips and gifts and all of that um, and other examples as well. When they self-govern, it doesn't work out correctly. And so that needs to go. And they should be at least applied, uh, or they should at least have applied to them the same standard as people in Congress do um, and other federal judges, if not more than those. Um, and I actually think when it comes to this particular example, even though it is 
Uh, it's, so it's inappropriate that her taxpayer funded staff were helping her with this venture, but it is allowed for her to um, do that right now because she doesn't have the same rules as other people in these types of positions of power. But then also it would be okay right now, even as a congressman or congresswoman or um, some other position to sell books and make money off of that. And I think we talked about this recently with Francis Suarez having another job as mayor of Miami and making money and now there's bribery accusations and all that. I think any of these crucial positions of power should be completely walled off where you can't make any other money, no other sources of income, not stocks, not books, not other jobs. You can only make the money that you're paid by the government. That's it. Um, but we're a long way away from that. And we could start with just a basic code of conduct. That's this, uh, the same as other um, government positions as uh, Congress people have and stuff like that. At least apply that to the Supreme Court. Then we'll talk about something else later on. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. I will see you tomorrow.